readers, and welcome to episode 26 of Lost the Plot, the Tinted Edges monthly podcast all about books. I'm your hosting Harriet, and today we're going to be talking about book disasters. We'll be chatting with the Australian National University's university librarian, Roxanne Missingham, about the aftermath of the flood that hit Chifley Library earlier this year. Everything was highly contaminated with moulds of many colours, but not black mould. Roxanne will also be giving us some expert tips on the best emergency action to take if you have a book disaster happen at home. If you want to follow along and find out more information about all the topics discussed in this episode, you can check out the show notes on the Lost the Plot webpage at www.tintededges.com slash lost dash the dash plot. Please also note that one news story this month discusses child sexual abuse, so if that's distressing to you, please feel free to skip ahead. I will give a warning in the book news section before I talk about that particular story. So I only have one book update this month, and it is the most exciting book update. I have been invited to host a live panel with two authors at Muse Food, Wine and Books in Kingston, Canberra. This is my first ever live book event. I'll be speaking with authors Robin Cadwallader and Eleanor Limprecht about women, history and journeys in their respective novels Book of Colours and The Passengers. The event is on the 29th of July 2018 at 3pm at Muse and you can get tickets via the link in the show notes. Now, I just want to highlight one campaign in our Books for the World segment this month, which is going with our theme of book disasters and along with our special guest. We'll hear more about the Chifley Library disaster in a bit, but the Chifley Library at ANU is currently looking for book donations to replace the books that they lost in the flood. You can go onto the donation webpage, which is in the show notes, make an account and browse the titles of books that they're specifically looking for. They're hoping that people can let them know what they can donate by the 31st of July 2018. One particular topic that they're looking for is museums. So if you have a collection of books on museums and you want to maybe see if they have the book that they're looking for, check out their list and you can also make a cash donation. Not a huge amount of book news this month, but there's still been some interesting stuff going on. Irish author Mike McCormack has won the £100,000 International Dublin Literary Award for his unconventional novel Solar Bones. The book is told from the perspective of a dead man over 270 pages in a single sentence. I feel like that would be a very unique narrative structure, but it would make it impossible to decide when to take a break. The shortlist for the 2018 Miles Franklin Award has been announced and there are some great books on there. We've got No More Boats by Felicity Castagna, The Life to Come by Michelle de Cretzo, The Last Garden by Eva Hornung, Storyland by Catherine McKinnon, Border Districts by Gerald Menane, and Taboo by Kim Scott. The winner will be announced on the 26th of August 2018. The shortlist has been announced for the 2018 Environment Award for Children's Literature. There are so many cute books on there, so if you're looking for inspiration for gifts for kids, this would be a great place to start. There are three categories, fiction, non-fiction, and picture fiction, and while I can't quite figure out when the winners will be announced, it's probably also going to be sometime in August. 
Geraldine McCochrian has won the 2018 Carnegie Medal, which is for an outstanding book written in English for children and young people. The British award is administered by the Chartered Institute of Library and Information Professionals. McCochrian won the award for her book, Where the World Ends, and it's the second time she's won, 30 years after her first win in 1988 for her book, A Pack of Lies. Now, this is sliding a little into the book controversy section, but McCochrian has taken the opportunity to speak out against the trend of publishers focusing on accessible language. She cautions that the trend will lead to an underclass of citizens with a small but functional vocabulary, easy to manipulate and lacking in the means to reason their way out of subjugation. That sounds quite 1984, doesn't it? She went on to say, most of its tyrannies are brought to bear on young books right now, but blink twice and today's junior school readers will be in secondary school, armed only with a pocket full of single syllable words and with brains far less receptive to the acquisition of vocabulary than when they were three or seven or nine. Since when has one generation ever doubted and pitied the next so much that it decides not to burden them with the full package of the English language, but to feed them only a restricted diet like poorly patients of simple words? Wow. Anyway, in another story that also straddles book awards and book controversies, the 2017 Stella Count has been announced, with 46% of books reviewed in the 12 publications surveyed being reviews on books written by women. This is a drop from the previous year, where 48% of the books reviewed were written by women, and you can see the full stats breakdown on their website. There were two super exciting, including one very terrifying, book discoveries in June. An extremely rare May Gibbs painting was discovered by Jeff and Amanda Turville in their garage. They had found the painting in 1993 with Amanda's grandfather's belongings and had saved it to hang up in their son's bedroom instead of sending it straight to the tip. After their son grew a bit older, the painting was hung in the shed until Jeff decided to try and find out a bit more about it. Apparently, he tried to contact Nutcote, which is a museum and former home of the Australian children's author, and they didn't even reply. Eventually, he came across a Canberra Times story about Jane Brummett, who found herself a rare May Gibbs painting and wrote to the Canberra Times. Now, I can't believe he didn't get a reply from Nutcote, even after sending through a photograph. It's clearly a Gibbs painting in her beautiful style, and they must be kicking themselves now. It's perfect timing to find the artwork as well, because this year is the 100-year anniversary of the publication of Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie, which was one of my favourite collections as a kid. And I forgot to mention, but earlier this year I went to the Sydney Vivid Festival to see the special tribute to the Gumnut Babies, which was this beautiful animated and narrated story adapted from Gibbs's work, projected onto the side of the customs building down at Circular Quay. I took a pretty dodgy video, but I won't subject you to that. Instead, you can see the official video from the May Gibbs website. There are also heaps of 100-year anniversary things that have been released, including a special edition of Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie, and even a clothing range. Now, in a much less sweet book discovery, Danish professors in the University of Southern Denmark have found not one, not two, but three books covered in arsenic. 
Arsenic is one of the most toxic substances in the world that can, and probably will, cause poisoning, cancer, and death. The professors were examining the books because it looked like fragments from medieval manuscripts had been used to make their covers, which is apparently quite a common practice. However, when they tried to use micro x-ray fluorescence to see through the green paint covering books, it turned out that the green paint was in fact arsenic. They think that the paint was used before people realized how deadly it can be to ward off things like rats and insects, though how they thought it would be deadly to rats and not to people, I have no idea. Now, unfortunately, there was not much in the way of new book releases, but there were plenty of exciting adaptations that have been announced. HBO have put in an order for a Game of Thrones spin-off prequel series to be set thousands of years prior to the events in the current series, based on the book series A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin. Still no news on how he's going with the next book, but the final season of Game of Thrones airs next year, and look, it is well beyond the book series now. A film adaptation has been announced of Sarah Waters' book The Little Stranger, and a trailer is already out. It looks like a really eerie version of Downton Abbey, about a doctor who returns to a manor he recalls visiting as a boy to treat a patient for mental illness after the patient returns from World War II. I haven't read the book yet, so I'd better get on it. Now, if you're an epic fantasy fan, you have probably heard of The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan a huge 13-book series that fantasy author Brandon Sanderson finished after Jordan died before he completed the final books. Anyway, the series has been slated for a TV adaptation by Amazon, but we don't have much else on how it's going to look yet. Netflix has announced it will be adapting Salman Rushdie's magic realism novel set in India called Midnight's Children into a TV series. I read the book some years ago, and while it is quite a difficult but incredibly insightful novel to get into, I think that the back and forth storytelling style will actually probably lend itself quite well to the screen, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what they make of it. Now, the absolute, hands down, most exciting adaptation announcement is that my most favourite graphic novel series, Black Sad, is being turned into a game for Nintendo Switch called Black Sad Under the Skin. Now, for those of you who aren't into gaming, why should you care? You should care because Blackside is the best graphic novel series of all time. Made by two Spanish ex-Disney animators, the series is hard-boiled detective noir that follows Blackside, a cat-like detective who solves crime in a world full of plenty of hard-hitting socio-political issues that, while set in the 1950s, still resonate today. The game looks like it'll be a 3D adventure game where you can solve crimes as Blackside himself, and I am so excited I can't even begin to tell you. Even if you're not interested in games, I cannot recommend this graphic novel enough. And I'm waiting something less than patiently for the release of the next installment, which is always published first in French. So one thing that we never seem to be short of is book controversy. However, this next story might be distressing to some and discusses child sexual abuse. So if you do not want to listen to it, please skip ahead now. The National Library of Australia is being pursued for compensation by an Indonesian man from Bali after the NLA published the diaries of the late artist Donald Friend. The diaries contain stories and sketches of the boy who was coerced into a sexual relationship by Friend when he was 10 and when Friend was in his 50s. 
Friends Diaries were donated to the NLA on the condition that they were published, and the final volume, chronicling his time in Bali, was published in 2006, and apparently has quite a wide distribution in Bali. The man seeking compensation who isn't named said that when he was told about the book by a filmmaker making a documentary, he was traumatised, ashamed and upset that nobody asked his permission before publication, given the level of detail about him in the book. However, the tort of privacy, which in some countries would allow the man to sue, isn't generally available in Australia. The NLA has acknowledged the hurt that the publication has caused, but there is a difficulty, which has been discussed a lot recently around the behaviour of authors and artists, of making available important aspects of Australian art history to the public and protecting the privacy and well-being of the individuals involved, on the other hand. There's also a growing question about how much you can separate the art from the artist. I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but what a horrible shock for the man and a difficult thing to solve now that the books have been out there for so long. Now, speaking of getting your book out there, it has been a little while since we've had a story of book publicity going horribly wrong. To be honest, I had never heard of Gemma Collins before I read this story, but essentially she's a British reality TV star who has released a book called GC, How to Be a Diva. As part of the publicity for the book, she was interviewed by Celebrity Rag Now, and the interview went very, very badly. Now, published the interview in its entirety, and it is cringeworthy. Basically, the interview begins by Gemma Collins being asked to tell the interviewer about the book. Her first response, right off the bat, was to ask the interviewer whether she had read the book. The interviewer said she hadn't, because she wasn't sent it. Gemma's PR person then whispered that only certain people were sent copies of the book, and the interview just deteriorates from there. Gemma says over and over again that the questions are pointless if the interviewer hasn't read the book, but it swiftly becomes clear that Gemma hasn't even read the book. Gemma eventually called off the interview, but then in subsequent interviews she responds to a question by saying, I've not read that bit in the book. If you listened to my previous episode on ghostwriting, it will come as no surprise that a celebrity didn't write their own book, but usually they at least know what's in it. She then went on to say in a later interview, and I cannot believe her PR team let her continue to do interviews, she then went on to say, well, I didn't sit there writing it, no. Yikes. Now, it's been a while since I've covered any book crimes, but this month there were two. If you haven't been listening to the podcast Trace, you are seriously missing out. Trace is an ongoing investigative journalism podcast by the ABC looking into the murder of a woman called Maria James in her own bookshop in the 1970s. Episode 6 has just been released, and the incompetencies, errors, and possible conspiracies surrounding her death continue to be uncovered. Journalist Rachel Brown is working closely with Maria's sons Adam and Mark, and I would thoroughly recommend you listen to it. Okay, so this final story is just wild. A librarian in Hong Kong's Tsung Kwan O Public Library has been caught mishandling the personal information of library patrons and falsely registering their cards as lost so that they have to return books immediately. The motive? The librarian wanted to read the books herself! I mean, while I see where she's coming from, it's definitely an abuse of power, and after mishandling over 100 people's personal information, the librarian was arrested. 
She's since been released on bail, but I imagine that her library career is now over. That being said, nobody can fault her passion for books. Now, speaking of passion for books, it's time to meet this month's special guest. So this afternoon, we're here at the Australian National University on the top floor of the Chifley Library with Roxanne Missingham, the University Librarian of ANU. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being here. Now, I understand, Roxanne, you've worked for lots of incredible libraries in your career, including the National Library of Australia, the Commonwealth Parliamentary Library and the CSIRO Library. When did your passion for libraries begin? So my mother would tell you in primary school. Oh, good. Early on. <laughs> Early onset <laughs> um, library enthusiasm. And I uh, come from a great family of readers. And so I've always enjoyed the whole concept of linking people to the information and the resources they need. So I actually came to Canberra to study science at the Australian National University, which oh, I fabulous. did. Did a science degree and actually studied in the Chifley Library and the Science Library because the Chifley Library supported, I did maths, English, gender studies, women's studies as it was in those days, um, as well as psychology. So I had a range of subjects that I really enjoyed, which meant I had to use a whole range of libraries. Yeah, very flexible science degree. Yeah, it was <laughs> very interesting and it was lovely to do a whole set of different thoughtful subjects that made me think. And I keep saying if you've done sort of the critical thinking in women's studies, you can then apply that to a remarkable lot of things. Fantastic. including in science. So when I finished my degree, there weren't a lot of jobs for women in science. So I looked around and I enrolled in the uh, Library and Information Science postgraduate degree at what was then the Canberra College of Advanced Education mm. and did that and then was extremely lucky to be recruited by the National Library into what was really their graduate program and oh. started my career in libraries there, which was awesome. What an opportunity. Yep. And so for my listeners who don't live in Canberra, the National Library is just a stunning library. It looking is. out over the lake. Fabulous. And so as an ANU graduate myself, I spent a lot of time at the ANU libraries. I think my favourite was probably Menzies, uh, which is the Asian oh, yes. Asia Pacific Studies Library because a, it had all the resources that I really wanted, and B, it's so quiet in there. It's, quiet. <laughs> it's really nice and quiet. I also liked Hancock Library because it was open really late, but also quite quiet and lots of a bit of a different crowd to some of the other ones. But definitely the best essay I ever wrote came from resources at the Chifley Library um, and all of the old archives and journals right down the bottom floor. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what makes the Chifley Library a special library? So the Chifley Library was the second purpose-built library at ANU. The first one was the Menzies Library. We celebrated the oh, 50th anniversary that. of the Menzies Library in 2012. It was actually opened by the Queen. Oh, there you go. So Today we've got I the learned. video footage of the Queen opening the library. Oh. So when the Chifley Library opened, and it was built in two sections, the back section and then the front section, uh, it actually opened 50 years ago this year. Oh, happy birthday. And we had the birthday party with a big sausage sizzle for students three days before the flood. So we had the oh. birthday party on the Thursday, the flood on the Sunday. So it was a very brief, big celebration. Yeah, right. But it does mean that we can say that the library had not flooded in 50 years. No. We've had various <laughs> other flood experiences um, that were much smaller than that. But it, the route for Sullivan's Creek had actually been changed to build the library here. 
Right. So Sullivan's Creek used to go through um, this part of the library, but it ha it was rerouted in order to build the library with a suitable footprint. I see. So opened the section section opened in sixty seven. Um, it's always been the primary undergraduate library, particularly in social sciences and humanities. Yeah. We've changed libraries over the years, so probably about eighty percent of our total collection is actually out in Hume in the print repository, and we only have a small footprint of collections on the campus. Oh, I didn't realise that. Yes. But students can still request things oh, yeah. from off-campus and have them brought in. Oh, great. Yep, we deliver it the following day. We've got a, a retrieval service every single day. And if anyone needs to use a lot of the older material, there's a little room set up so people can go out there and study and use the collection. Oh, fabulous. Um, we've also turned into 24-7. So Chifley was the first library to go 24-7. Uh, two years ago, we went 24-7 on the entrance level floor, mm -hmm. level two. We then went 24-7 last year on level three. And we hopefully will be going 24-7 in all of the student study spaces in the Hancock Library in the middle of semester two this year. Oh, that's so exciting. So it is exciting, challenging to get our mind around it. And we've done all sorts of piloting, but it does mean that if a student has an assignment due at 7am they can actually come in at 5. Uh, where we find people use us most is in fact late at night so if you are in the Chifley Library at midnight you'll see hundreds of other students Yeah, and it sort of fits the lifestyle because a lot of students have jobs in cafes or other places so that they can go and do that shift then come into the library and do some deep study in a quiet place and we've also refurnished the area here with much much more soft furniture that absorbs the sound mm. to encourage a better learning space for students. It's amazing how much design goes into libraries to, to facilitate that really deep learning. It's and very interesting and what we did with the new furnishings here is we put all the furnishing out we had a, a designer who did the layout so we went okay and we put sort of large soft furnishing with sides that are soft that absorb the sound um, oh, in an area and we put other things in other areas and we just put it out there and the students move it around so after about four or five months the students have got it in the places that would work best for them and then we fixed some of the things to the floor to um, stop some of the things moving around and breaking but we actually took an experiential approach so that it wasn't about saying students have to learn how to live in a world that someone else has designed it was about saying we'll throw it out there and students can redesign it and we will then fix it in the places that work best for them. Oh that's so clever it's sort of like those places where they've you know, you might have a quad with buildings all around and they don't build any pathways until a little while so they can see where people walk. Exactly. Oh, that's genius. So it's a good philosophy and it worked and we have very close relationships with the students because it is their lives that we are supporting and so we're supporting their study here but we're actually helping them form communities, have support so that they can be in safe spaces, all sorts of different things that happen in the library. The Chifley Library is quite special, not just because it's been around for 50 years and it, and it has a lovely collection, but it's actually supported lots of different studies. So Manning Clark has studied here, lots of the famous historians have come in and borrowed books, and the whole collection has been built in partnership between the academics and the library staff mm. over 50 years. So while the older material is all out at Hume, 
and we were very, 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 very sad to lose the material that was on level one. Yes. It was a working collection, so it wasn't the historic materials, it wasn't the rare books, because the rare books are in the Menzies Library in level one, mm -hmm. in the basement, and it wasn't the manuscript material, it was material that as we investigate what we're doing, we're able, we think we'll be able to replace pretty much all of the material, and there are a couple of different strategies that we're looking at to do it. But level one is, is empty at the moment. We had to take down all the walls because it happened the last Sunday in February. It was very wet. Yeah, the whole so week was it was moist. It torrential was rain that day as well because it was, it was oh, I'm trying to think if I can remember the stats, but it was a month's worth of rainfall in one day right at the end of February. I think it was, it was huge. The, it was just unbelievable. I, I had a friend visiting and we were driving around um, on the north side of Canberra ah. and it was just mayhem. It was pouring with rain, all the traffic was blocked off, police cars everywhere, flooding everywhere. And then, of yep. course, when I heard about what had happened at the Chifley Library. So how much flooding was there down the bottom? So I should start by saying I, it was very localised. So I live in Canberra. So when I got the phone call from security to say the library's um, flooded, I thought, but this is just normal rain. Yeah. Um, so it was a very localised, very heavy uh, lot of uh, weather and it put huge impacts. So you might think that the water would have come this way from the uh, western end, but in fact the water came down north. So. Toad Hall was damaged, Ady Hope was damaged, Melville Hall was oh, damaged. Oh, so we from the north side of Sullivan's Creek. From the north Creek. side. Right, yes, because uh, I live in the south side, but where I saw all the flooding was the north side of Canberra around um, Lynham. Ah, yes. You know, so it, it, it sort of it was, it, it had just, just all come from that direction. Down very, very quickly. So within a very short period of time, less than an hour, there was more than a metre worth of water. Oh, my God. Gosh. downstairs oh so gosh. more than half of the collection was underwater oh. and that water stayed at that level for several days we had several toilets down there so the water came out of the toilets oh my goodness Plus, we had all of the silt from Sullivan's Creek so it was quite contaminated water yeah right so, so yeah during that period we had humidity inside of more than 70 degrees for most of the week oh um, we had dehumidifiers and fans in from the Wednesday mm. and they only left the building a couple of weeks ago. So they were literally running... So they've been going for months. For months, 24-7. Oh 24 gosh. To get all of the the moisture out. Because I guess that's the thing. It's one thing having the books a metre underwater, but when all of that water is evaporating to the rest of the exactly. library and you do still have books out on yep. the shelves here... Yep. I didn't even think of that. So it was massive. So we had heat, humidity, really a very, very large body of water. We had contaminated water mm. um, sitting there and there was very little you could do other than wait for the water to drain first. Because it was hot. It was at the it end was of very February. Warm. Yeah. And Canberra doesn't usually have humidity, but it was no. a humid week. Yeah. So we had really the worst scenario. If this had happened in wintertime, it would have been there would have been less damage. Oh, right. But it, it was what it was. We had a um, conservation expert, mm -hmm. uh, Kim Morris from uh, Art and Archival out in Queanbeyan, who has more than 30 years experience in preservation, come and give us advice. And he was just wonderful. And he basically said, you've got five to seven days 
and after that things will not be recoverable because the fungus grew, the mould grew to a centimetre or more oh on the books, gosh. including the books that were not below the waterline. Oh my gosh. So water In a week? In a week. Oh. It was just massive. So the, <gasps> we had microfiche down there and microfiche have gelatin in them. And gelatin and fungus are very happy buddies. So did the fish come from? Microfiche. So the little stuff you put in a microfiche reader. There was a fish that came in as well and oh died my, on no, the okay, carpet. Okay. But the microfiche is um, cellulose and it has images of pages of right, books. So right, right, And microfilm, right. which again has... Okay, yes, I understand. So very efficient storage, but absolutely dreadful in a flood. And so everything was highly contaminated with moulds of many colours, but not black mould. Um, pretty much within uh, within five days it was extremely uh, visible through the collections and it was important for us that we take those collections out so that we didn't contaminate the collections on level yes, three and level four. exactly. So it was quite um, a difficult decision to make and the books, we started moving them out really from the Saturday of that first week. Mm -hmm. uh, we rescued some which are in a freezer. So the freezer, I'm just trying to think of the temperature that the freezer has to be. So it has to be much colder than your normal freezer in, okay. in your fridge. And the idea is you put it in there, it gets no worse. And you have up to a year to decide what to do with the books. So we looked at the pamphlets because some of the pamphlets were printed in small runs and pamphlets tend to be things that people don't necessarily collect and keep. Mm. And there were a couple there that we identified that were held hardly anywhere else in Australia. And we put, have put that material in the freezer and we have until February next year to work our way through those items. Everything else had to go and we had water pooled under the compactuses. We had our most efficient storage in the whole university library down there, row after row yeah. after row of compactuses. It was wonderful. I uh, know, it was, fa it was fabulous when I was researching down there because there was so much information but not a lot of standing room. No. And the water pools, so the compactuses are above the ground level mm. and the water pooled under there and the water stayed in those pools and including some of the little storerooms for several weeks and became quite contaminated. Oh goodness me. And so when staff were going down there did they have to wear sort of hazmat yep. gear? I'm just looking to see if I have a mask. So there was masks. Yep. Um, we did have the full suits for people who were working down there for any length of time. Yeah. We had, I should say that we are prepared, cultural industries in the ACT are part of uh, national and um, ACT government um, cultural institutions are part of what's called DISACT, which is a disaster recovery group, and mm. there's that we actually disaster recover, recovery training that runs every year or so. Mm. We had some staff who had been to that training, which was a good thing. Gosh, that's so fortunate. <laughs> and um, the other cultural institutions did reach out to us, and most of them have a small freezer and some equipment. Um, but really because of the size of the disaster, we lost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of volumes. Oh. There wasn't a lot that they could do for us. But they were it was a working collection, so it's replaceable. Yeah. Uh, every library has a disaster recovery bin. Our disaster recovery bin for Chifley has lots of plastic, gloves, masks, three pairs of gumboots, <laughs> all sorts of equipment. So we had 
um, equipment already that we could use as part of the disaster work and our ANU archives has a very large mm. um, disaster bin and we used everything in that and it has since been replaced as well. So the university, it was a whole university crisis which actually was um, terrific for us because it meant that everyone was really focused and it was um, everyone working together, our building people, our public relations people, um, us, the owners of the other buildings that had been affected by floods and it was a really um, intense approach that was able to marshal a lot of resources. So we didn't actually do, in terms of library staff, the disposal books. The university contracted with a special company yep. to move all the books out and Canberra Industrial Cleaners Cleaning were responsible for all of the cleaning and keeping things moving and in fact the disposal of the books and they did just a wonderful oh, job. Oh fantastic. They were fantastic. They were really thoughtful, well organised, they learnt while they were doing the project mm. and it was massive. So if you go down there now you will see that we've had to take the walls out because of course chiprock walls get contaminated by the mould yes, as well. Yes. So when it's we say it's cleaned out, all the carpet had to go, all the walls had to go, all of the storage bays, the compactuses and the storage bays for the microfusion wheel had to go because they were all so contaminated by yeah. mould, it would have been impossible to get it out. That is unbelievable that it happened so quickly, the mould. Very quickly. You know, and it's almost post-apocalyptic, isn't it? Yes, so, so quick. And we'd actually rescued a book on the Thursday and put it in the Menzies Library in the workroom. And we looked at it the following Thursday thinking we'd taken it out. It wasn't in the water affected levels. It was up higher, it looked okay, we put it on a desk and by the following Thursday it was covered with oh mould. So it wasn't near anything else so we had to take it out of the building, seal it up, make sure it was um, destroyed and that those mould uh, spores did not infect anyone else in the collection. So making the decision that the collection had to go was the best possible thing to protect the rest of the collection. Yeah, but what a hard decision oh. to make, goodness it me. Was awful yeah. so we spent most of the day sorting out the th on the Saturday the things that we were going to put in storage uh, um, in the freezer and we did that on the Sunday as well talked to Kim all through the day made the hard decision and Heather my deputy and I went home independently I went to the shop and bought hokey pokey ice cream she went and bought <laughs> chocolate we went to bed and just, <laughs> just suffered the grief oh well, yeah, I've had previously I've had people comment when I've shared stories about books being damaged that I need to put a content warning on it because it's just too upsetting. And obviously recently um, the Law Library at University of Tasmania had a very similar yep. disaster with very sad photos of all the books because and actually gone out strewn the on the lawn. Yes. And, you know, extraordinary. just heartbreaking, heartbreaking stuff. And so I guess almost really unforeseeable because... Canberra just yep. is such a dry city ordinarily. And we don't generally have humidity. No, no. Though Quite then again, rare. the first year I moved here, we had an incredible hailstorm on the yep. ANU campus that yep. um, and shut Civic, the university down for a And it week. blocked the drains. Yep. So the Civic Library had just been opened the week before. Yeah. It was flooded, so yep. it had to close for months. Chifley was affected. Yeah, our accommodation, the hail had um, damaged the fire alarm system. Oh, so we had to evacuate because the fire alarm wouldn't stop going off out into the hail. It was just a nightmare. Oh, no. But Canberra's a wonderful place to live. 
<laughs> it is. So we really focused in the first couple of weeks on restoring services. So we closed the library for a couple of weeks and we moved the two-hour loans to the science library. Yes. So the student services were uninterrupted for a, a, as far as humanly possible. Um, our staff moved into the Menzies library and so they were working from there on desks and whatever PCs we could make available mm -hmm. and we had a twice a day retreat into the Chifley Library to retrieve things that people wanted. Yeah. So that was important. We'd actually, for the collection that was affected on level one, um, sort of triaged the, the, the approach that we took. So the National Library very kindly they run a national union catalogue of everyone's holdings pretty much in mm. Australia. And they looked at that database to see how many items that were in our collection in the run, so the monograph run was A to DU, that we were the only library in Australia that held. Yes. So okay. they gave us that list. The books had literally been washed off the shelves, so in some places we couldn't go and get the books, but we retrieved most of those books that were most special. And put those straight in the freezer? And put those in the freezer. Yes. Okay. We also, I also checked the ones that we couldn't retrieve and all of those were, had been sold on the second hand market within the last couple of years so we know we could, the likelihood of replacing it in the next couple of years was very high. Okay, great. We also retrieved any book that was on two day loan. Yep. because we knew those were books that were in demand for teaching mm -hmm. and so we were there weren't very many of them we were able to retrieve the two-day loans and make them available from another library oh, fabulous. so we did that very early before the risk of mold was too high so they were available to the university and there were a roughly a thousand books that were also online mm -hmm. so they were saved and the rest um, are not Probably one of those very infrequent occasions where it was maybe a good thing if people had overdue books. That's right. We waived all fines on anything anyone had and just said thank you. <laughs> so once the books... Obviously, you know, you had to make that heartbreaking decision to not try to recover a lot of the books, but some of them yep. are in the freezer. Yep. Once they're in the freezer, what's the process for trying to recover them after that, how, how can you get a frozen book and restore it? Yep. So the main issue for us is to determine which are worth saving. Yes. Um, and that buys you a year to kind of yep. make so those Yeah, so we've got a year choices. to do the title by title, looking at it and saying, uh, what do we need to do? Then when we take the books out, and I guess um, also a bit of advice, if you do have a book that is damaged by water, it's really important that you don't add heat. Yes, Heat is okay. the prime risk for mould, so don't get out your hairdryer. Yes, okay. Whatever you do. The best thing with a damaged book is, so to, is to sit it up on its spine. Oh, good, because that's what I did. So for my well listeners, done. I've got two books, and I'll just quickly explain them. So one book is The Stolen Bicycle by Wu Mingyi, which is a fantastic book about a Taiwanese man oh. um, whose father disappeared and he tries to find out what happened to him by trying to track down his bicycle. And um, anyway, I was reading enthusiastically in bed one night, which I always do, and I, somehow I managed to knock a glass of water on it. And so I did put it standing up. And this, so this one isn't too bad. It's a little warped at the back, but the front isn't too bad. Now the other book is a bit more tragic. And in my previous episode, I did, I did talk about the fact that it, um, was the victim of a very unfortunate kimchi accident, oh, <laughs> where my partner was um, 
making kimchi, which I thoroughly support, but unfortunately the kimchi uh, was fermenting a little bit too vigorously and fermented yep. directly on top of my beautiful 10th anniversary edition oh. of The Name of the Wind. And so it is a little garlicky. So, okay, so step one is to put them on their side. Set them up so that their their spine is upright. Yep. Spread so the pages. Yep. Um, and you can put in paper clips or other things to spread the pages. Oh, so spread and just each run page. a fan oh, over them. Okay. Uh, into them so that the moisture is evaporated as quickly as possible. Yes. Because you want to get as much moisture as you can out. Then... Uh, depending on how rare the book is and how much you want to restore it, you may want to put some special papers between the sheets okay. and try and do that. But again, the most important reason you're trying to, to do that for is to just take the moisture out. Yes. Then when the moisture is all out, it's a matter of looking at the book to see what restoration activity may be necessary. If it's a very rare book and you wish to restore it, you may well take the spine off. Oh, okay. Um, and certainly you'd do that if it was a real treasure. Then separate the pages. You may need to, if the quality of the, pa the print on the pages has been damaged, you may want to put Japanese paper on them mm -hmm. and find a way of enhancing the um, any images or any text. Mm. Um, that really is probably... And then you may wish to rebind it or you may want to put it into a, a mylar, which is an acid-neutral container. Oh, OK. So part of the challenge for us is always to determine what is the reaction of the chemicals that are used in the paper mm -hmm. and the chemicals that are used in oh, the in printing, the yeah, yeah. which may react with things like vinegar. Yes, Says right. she's smelling D Does it smell like vinegar? vinegar? Yeah. Just a <laughs> tiny bit. So fungus is something you need to, to kill off straight away, but neither of these are fungus victims, yeah, which so is this a very one, good thing. Well, I think it's pretty it's pretty cold and dry in my house. Excellent. <laughs> old, old Canberra um, government house. But this one... Yeah, this one definitely, this one happened a couple of months ago and I, I put it up upright straight away and it definitely Very doesn't good. have any mould. It's just a bit warped. Um, this one, surprisingly, yeah. considering it was a few weeks ago now and covered in, what you know, food essentially. I mean, the, the pages are a bit warped and the front, right at the front, is a little bit discoloured. But, I mean, it's, it, it's I've seen doing, worse. It's pretty good. So you might want to, for something where the pages are slightly deformed, uh, put it in a press or put it under weights if that's all you need to do. Mm -hmm. So if you're not likely to cut the spine off and do restoration work on the pages because it's not needed, um, weight will often, just over time, take some of the... Um, uh, folds and undulations out of the paper, which is a good thing. And it, this doesn't smell hugely strong, which means that the chemicals probably haven't affected the paper or the. Oh, what ink, a good which diagnosis! Is good. That's so very lucky. Under, I was going to say, in the old days, we'd say telephone books, and you can get presses. So the old book presses, oh, but okay. they're very large, and you probably don't want to store a book press. What do you think if I had some, maybe some clamps or something? Uh, yep. If I could get Either clamps or weights. And then, yeah, okay. Yep. And just, just give it books time. On top. <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with putting books on top of books. <laughs> so these are probably quite good. But the main thing when something happens immediately is try to dry it. Yeah. Don't apply heat. Yep. Um, and be patient. Oh, fantastic. 
Well, thank you so much for that. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope everything goes well for the rest of the restoration process. Thank you very much. We're aiming to rebuild the whole collection. Some of it we will, we may well be more likely to have digital replacement for. So the microfiche. Yes. No one really enjoys putting microfiche into a reader and zipping it around or microfilm. People get seasick with microfilm. So we're hoping we can replace those with digital copies because then people can also do uh, data and text mining in order to use the material in other formats. Um, but for the monographs, we do want to replace them. And we've just launched a flood donation appeal and we've put the titles of the books up on a database. Oh, and fantastic. anyone can log in. Just do an internet search of Chifley Flood Donation Appeal and then you can give us your name and details. You can choose any books that you would like to donate mm -hmm. and we will in some months be following up with everyone. We're asking them to put them aside and then we'll put it all together and start replacing the collection. Brilliant. Well, I'll share all the links for that in the show notes so Fantastic. people can check it out and find out how they can help out. Lovely. Thank you so much, Roxanne. Okay, lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you. I had a pretty dismal reading month in June, and I only got through three books. Goodreads keeps telling me that I'm eight books behind in my reading challenge, so hopefully I can get cracking over the next month so I can try and meet my goal of 80 books. Now, two of these books I have to talk about because they were excellent. The first was the Doomsday Book by Connie Willis, which won both the Hugo and Nebula Awards back in the early 1990s. A friend of mine actually bought me a copy of this years ago, maybe three or four years ago, and I've only just gotten around to reading it, so sorry Erin. But Willis has this incredible sense of pacing and brought a fantastic tension to this novel which is about time travel, the plague, and medieval England. The second book is called Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, which was one of the books I picked up at the Sydney Writers' Festival earlier this year. This is an anthology of short autobiographies by 50 Aboriginal people from around the country, collected into one volume with an introduction by editor Dr. Anita Heiss. This should really be mandatory reading in schools. The stories are so diverse, but there are echoes of shared experiences throughout the book, and I think this is a brilliant way to build empathy and understanding. Alright readers, that's it from me. I'll be back with another episode in August on a book-themed topic and with lots of book news and book reviews. If you want to support this podcast and help to keep it on air, check out the Patreon page where you can support Lost the Plot for as little as a dollar an episode. You can also follow the Tinted Edges Facebook page to keep up to date with upcoming book events. You can leave a review on iTunes or you can subscribe to the Tinted Edges website. Thanks so much for listening.